0: a deep ideological issue Americans have been trained to look upon economic problems and blame politicians it is a bizarre weird mentality let me give you an example you're listening
1: to the labor radio podcast weekly in our first segment economist Richard Wolf talks with the heartland labor forum about who's really to blame for inflation
2: It's a hospital work environment. It's the way you are treated from the time you walk in the door, uh, sit down or sit over there or I'll get to you. It's just the tone from the person that you meet when you walk into the school.
1: Next, what happens when teachers are out sick or on quarantine, and there's a dire shortage of subs? We find out from the CTU
3: Speaks podcast. So if you want to increase the, the weight of trucks on public roads, which does more damage, um, you justify that to lawmakers as you know part of a, a solution to a driver shortage. If you want to get more public subsidies to train workers in a high turnover industry like trucking, well, there's a trucker shortage.
1: On the Belabored podcast, Steve Buscelli discusses his new book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the decline of the American dream.
4: In 2020, as the Indian government called for a nationwide lockdown to combat the pandemic, it witnessed a surge in domestic violence cases. A complete lockdown meant that accessing support became difficult, leaving women trapped at the mercy of their abusers. Despite these hurdles, women advocates in India were able to provide relief and support to survivors without even stepping outside their homes through a network of WhatsApp groups.
1: In the first of our international news updates, Radio Labour reports on women's use of WhatsApp to fight abuse.
5: Ending up with 736 convictions, many of which have now been ruled in affront front of the conscience of the court because the post office basically prosecuted these people on faulty IT information.
1: Finally, from the Union News podcast, author of The Great Post Office Scandal, Nick Wallace, explains the Horizon IT scandal and its ramifications for the future. I'm Chris Garlott, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, You'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And, of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website at laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. My step, the this march can be won be one. Many stones can form an arch. Singly none, singly none. And by union what we will can be accomplished still. Drops of water turn
5: a mill. Singly none, singly none.
2: Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. A weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and
6: for the working people of Kansas City.
2: Hi, this is Judy Ansell. There's a lot of talk about inflation these days and who to blame. The news media is in a bit of a frenzy over it. But our guest tonight has what appears to be a unique perspective. He says it's the bosses. How refreshing. Our guest is none other than Richard D. Wolfe. He's an emeritus professor of economics from the University of Massachusetts Amherst and a visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School University in New York City.
0: So the first thing to understand about inflation is that it is worsening inequality in the United States. Because let's remember, when you raise the price, that's money going into the pocket, of the person raising the price and we call those people employers or capitalists or whatever else word you like Uh, but it's a tiny minority of the american people who are in control of prices perhaps the most important fact i can present to everybody to keep in mind Before you start explaining to me what the ultimate causes are, let's be real clear about who raises prices, whether it be of your hamburger or your blouse or your software program or anything else. It's the employers. Maybe 1% of our people are employers. They raise prices if there's an inflation. It's not the workers we as a nation have gone through two of the worst years in american history then at the end of two years of that to literally slap the american people in the face with an inflation is a sign of an economic system that is it's crazy what are we doing to ourselves to permit a sequence of this when it isn't necessary back to the inflation. Simple, simple story. Why do employers, why do businesses, why do capitalists, whatever word you like, why do they raise prices? In other words, why do we have an inflation? Well, again, let's be very simple because this is not complicated. Employers raise prices, for the same reason that employers make all their other decisions. It's the belief of the employer that the profitability of the business will be enhanced if he or she does X rather than Y. So the answer to the question, why raise prices is simple. It's because it's profitable to do so. Here's the problem, when the the public confronts a price increase the capitalist the business always knows something you're going to be resented the people who go into the supermarket now and discover that that hamburger or that uh, broccoli or whatever it is they're buying costs way more than it did a month ago they're going to be upset because they're getting the same hamburger but they're giving up more money and they know that that hurts And they know who they're giving the money to, to the seller, to the business man or woman who is putting that broccoli there or that hamburger or that pair of shoes or whatever it is. So a problem arises. The seller is offending the buyer. So here's what we have. An attempt by the seller to make very sure that whatever the reason is for his or her action, it isn't what they wrote on their essay in the business school. (laughs) You know, there's something fundamentally lying about this. You are lying. Sure, you may have a wage increase. Sure, you may be paying more. You may have more costs. But every businessman or woman who's ever done a lick of work knows that whatever happens to your costs there's always 10 different ways to respond it would be easy for me to show you as an economic historian which i am a thousand examples of where the cost of wages or the cost of inputs went up and the capitalist found other solutions not raising prices so biden is being blamed for this for sure there was just a
2: poll that came out that said that 65% of americans fault biden for the problem of inflation and see inflation as a big problem
0: he doesn't have the power and there is no reasonable argument act in economics none that would hold him responsible uh that's just silly if you think whatever you think it takes a long time for the policy of any president to impact an economy in a general way this is a deep ideological issue americans have been trained to look upon economic problems and blame politicians it is a bizarre weird mentality let me give you an example when we have unemployment large numbers of workers lose their job they get angry at politicians when people in the in the great recession of 2008 and 9 when three or four million americans lost their homes they blame the politicians this is wonderful. The employer who fired you or the banker who foreclosed your home, they got off, Scott. They didn't get the blame. You Americans are trained look over the capitalist who really sticks it to you and blame the politician. You know what this does? It gives the capitalist an incentive to, to kick you again because you don't get angry at them. You get angry at somebody else. Thank you very
2: much, Richard Wolff. Okay. You've given us a lot to think about.
0: All right. Thank you. You have
2: been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement.
7: Welcome to this episode of CTU Speaks, Safety and Staffing.
2: I was taught by a Chicago teacher, Chicago
7: teacher, Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher,
8: so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers.
7: I'm your co-host, Jim Staros, and I'm joined with...
8: Andrea Parker.
7: All right, Ms. Parker, how are you?
8: I'm doing great, all things considered. Happy New Year to you. Happy
7: New Year to you, too. It's been a long time since we've been here doing this, doing our thing. It has. All right, now we're back with uh, two of our special guests. We've got Georgia Waller and Burma Green. They're going to be talking to us about the sub shortage and staffing issues we've got across the city related to substitutes. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing
8: great.
7: I'm good. Nice to hear you guys.
8: It is. Thank you so much for being on the show today. We know that you have been working very hard. So thank you for being on CTU Speaks today. Thank you for inviting us. So there are many causes of sub shortages, and it's not just a CPS issue. We know that teacher sub shortages are a national issue. So how many subs are there, and what is the suggested amount based on a 300,000 student population? Well, right now, um, that's still, uh, to be determined because, um, the information that we had was somewhere around maybe 3000 subs, but that's not the actual number because they're adding more substitutes as we speak right now. So, you know, when we do our, our joint staffing, uh, meeting pretty soon to see where we are, they've been adding more subs.
7: And, you know, when there was an article in the Sun-Times where the the CEO is talking about the reason for the sub-shortage in Chicago, and he was talking about the fact that it's a combination of issues with COVID and just the problem with the labor market in general. But, you know, when I was thinking about it, the sub-issue, it's been going on for years. I mean, years and years and years. So what do you guys think the real problem with the sub shortage in Chicago is? What's causing it? It's not just COVID and a tight labor market, like the CEO said.
2: The shortage, in my opinion, and I know I speak for a lot of my brothers and sisters, is related to the working condition that substitutes face in many schools. The working condition are not, (laughs) they're not pleasant for subs. You may be assigned one class, but You're given several classes. You are given other duties, lunchroom duties, hall duties, recess, and even security duties. So as a result, people just don't return. A lot of substitutes, well, I won't say a lot, but a large majority of substitutes are retired teachers. Unlike many subs that have no education background, retired teachers and people like myself who have been in the system for a while, we know what we should be doing. Correct. When you're given other duties and in in lieu of following one teacher's schedule, you're given, forget the prep, you're given uh, another assignment on on the assigned teacher's prep. So what do our members do? You may just say, okay, I'll get through the day and not return. And many will just leave, but they definitely will not return because it's just, it's a hospital work environment. It's the way you are treated from the time you walk in the door, uh, sit down or sit over there or I'll get to you. It's just the tone from the person that you meet when you walk into the school. And those are turnoffs. People don't have to take that. So they just don't return. Uh, another issue is the lack of lesson plans. You may walk in and since preps are optional, you don't have time to plan. You may walk in and there's no lesson plan. And as a result, an administrator may say, well, uh, you don't have control of the class. How can you have control and you trying to provide a lesson and, and teach at the same time when there was none left?
7: I just want to thank you guys, Georgia and Burma. Thank you guys so much for for being here today. Yes,
2: thank you so much.
8: And let's just keep fighting. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. This has been going on for decades with CPS. But we're here to make sure that we're, you know, going to take you across the finish line and get whatever we can. So thank everybody. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you all so much. Thank you for having us and for giving us a voice today. Thank Definitely.
7: you. Thank
6: you. You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcasts. Hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. We survived the holidays, sort of, but the supply chain crisis talk continues. And so here at Belabored, we are continuing our intermittent series on what the supply chain is and what the work of keeping it running looks like. Today, we're joined by Steve Vichelli, a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania who studies freight transportation. His book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream from University of California Press, explains how long-haul trucking went from being one of the best blue-collar jobs to one of the toughest. And his current research project, Driverless, Autonomous Trucks and the Future of the American Trucker, explores self-driving trucks and their potential impact on labor and the environment. So one of the things we're hearing a lot is that there's a trucker shortage but so, what is? And we'll get deeper into a lot of the the roots of this. But what is the reality of this so called trucker shortage?
3: So the the trucker shortage. The the best way to understand this, and I know it's it's a bit disconcerting for folks when they hear it, but maybe not so much to your listeners. Um, but the best way to understand this is as some lobbying rhetoric.
6: Mm. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, um, and it's it's brilliant lobbying rhetoric. So. Um, you know, it's like a master narrative. And it really, if you're a big trucking company, it doesn't matter what you want. You can you can fit it under this narrative. So if you want to increase the, the weight of trucks on public roads, which does more damage, um, you justify that to lawmakers as, you know, part of a, a solution to a driver shortage. If you want to get more public subsidies to train workers in a high turnover industry like trucking, well, there's a trucker shortage. If you want to loosen the regulations that control how many hours truck drivers can drive in a day, well, there's a trucker shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, and most recently in the infrastructure bill, which apparently um, this narrative swayed uh, the Senate to include a provision in, in, there, in there that will allow um interstate motor carriers to start training drivers under 21 years old. And of course, that's because there's a truck driver shortage. Um, So it's a very effective uh, master narrative of what's happening, but it runs completely contrary to what we know from from research and what just about any experienced truck driver will tell you, which is that we actually have a trucker uh, surplus. So we have been training hundreds of thousands of people per year to become truck drivers, but those jobs are so bad in some segments. Now, very you know, we gotta be really careful. There are still some great truck driving jobs out there. Some of them are unionized, most of them are not, but they're for private carriers and, and some of the uh, better carriers that are that move parcels like UPS. And in those jobs, we don't see a lot of turnover. Um, in some segments, like the long haul segment, we see a ton of turnover. And what they're doing is they're just training, you know, um, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people per year. And those people only stay for three months or so. So that has meant that we have millions of people who have trained to become a truck driver and are currently licensed to be a truck driver um, who just aren't doing the job.
6: So when we're talking about, the supply chain right which gets talked about as though it's one thing when it is many many different things talk a little bit about sort of the role of of trucking in this long chain of production and logistics and the different kinds of trucking we're talking about too
3: so there's you know there are as many kinds of trucking as there are products that we want to move in the economy virtually everything that that you and i consume uh, that sustains and, and entertains us uh, is going to come at some point uh, in its journey on a truck. Um, so that means that we have everything from drivers who have uh, been in, in the news a lot lately, who hander, handle containers at shipping ports, right? Um, and they may be really providing a short link between modes like a ship and rail. Um, and then, of course, on the other end of, of that rail journey, they may, there may be a truck again. Um, and then there's, there's truck, uh, shipments that go long distance point to point, you know, from coast to coast, uh, that that's called uh, truckload, you know, meaning that you have a full shipment of goods that, that take up the capacity of, of the truck. And then you have what's called less than truckload and less than truckload could be up to 10,000 pounds, could be anything from a couple hundred pounds to 10,000 pounds and that's going to be picked up in a smaller truck or in a local truck that brings it to a terminal and then all uh, gets combined with a whole bunch of other stuff based on where it's going. And then it goes over the road in, um, in a trailer and these combined loads to another terminal where it gets broken down. And then there's a uh, parcel, which we're all familiar with, something like FedEx or UPS or um, DHL. Those are all for hire, meaning that these are trucking companies that move stuff for somebody else. Then, then we have a whole other big segment called private trucking, which is going to be your in-house fleets like Walmart or Budweiser or someone like that who is moving products that they either produce or, or sell. Solidarity.
9: So
6: Back, You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast for the entire archive of past episodes. Visit Descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.
2: This is Solidarity News
6: on Radio Labour.
0: This is a Radio Labour World Report, recorded on Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm Mark Boulanger. Women in India were subjected to even more domestic violence as pandemic lockdowns were implemented, but they fought back. Seemarie Ainsborough has a report.
10: When the COVID-19 pandemic hit India in 2020, the effects were especially hard on women. As the government implemented lockdowns and forced people to stay in their homes, women were isolated and left without help to protect themselves. The rate of domestic violence soared, and there was very little assistance from the government. But women across the nation started to organize. One group started to use WhatsApp to connect their members over vast areas. WhatsApp is a messaging service which lets users text each other, chat and share media, including voice messages and video is particularly useful for lower-income people because it uses data transfer and so does not cut into their monthly text allotment. To highlight the digital activism of women in India during the pandemic, the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF, produced
4: a video. In 2020, as the Indian government called for a nationwide lockdown to combat the pandemic, it witnessed a surge in domestic violence cases. A complete lockdown meant that accessing support became difficult, leaving women trapped at the mercy of their abusers. Despite these hurdles, women advocates in India were able to provide relief and support to survivors without even stepping outside their homes through a network of WhatsApp groups. As India makes rapid strides digitally, a huge demographic still remains largely disconnected. For many women in the country, networking is restricted to their locality at best, limiting them from raising voice against issues universal to women. Among the many hurdles that inhibit women from coming forward are her assigned roles and responsibilities at home, leaving little or no time after work hours, the need to take permission and the fear of being harassed for stepping outside her boundaries, the lack of women-friendly spaces and social stigma which robs them of their right to gather and organize, Even at work, women are left out of core decision making, making it difficult for them to address their issues and raise support. Women Advocates, or Nirbhayas, as they are known in India, have created a primary WhatsApp group called Pramukh Nirbhaya, consisting of about 250 core members from the 36 districts of Maharashtra. Fortnightly discussions are conducted in the group on major issues and decisions are made, which are then passed on to secondary groups from each district, consisting of women from respective depots. In this way, information is spread all across the state, reaching more than 5,000 women within minutes. In December 2019, a group of Nirbhaya's set out on a road trip to conduct workshops and surveys on domestic violence in the state. Over two months, Nirbhaya's scaled all 36 districts of Maharashtra, a region roughly two times the size of England. A program of this scale had to be planned meticulously on locations to visit, mobilizing women, preparing them and the venues for workshops, all of which was done on WhatsApp well before the kickoff date. Nirbhaya's surveyed and interacted with over 6,000 women, along with alliance groups like the police, healthcare officials, and NGOs. This further increased their digital reach, which proved invaluable when the nationwide lockdown led to a rise in domestic violence. Soon, a system was put in place. Helplines were shared widely across groups, and a lot of women had a network of allies to seek help from
10: video was produced by the Women's Advocate Program of the ITF and Women Transporting the World. This is Seymour Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. And that's it.
0: Labour news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Balanchine. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
9: Hello and welcome to this special edition of the UK's only all things union podcast, Union Jews. I'm Simon Sapper. The Horizon IT debark saw hundreds and hundreds of postmasters, postmistresses and employees prosecuted by the post office on false allegations of theft compounded by a methodical cover up. It's been likened to the Windrush scandal in terms of the severity of impact on its victims and survivors. Investigative journalist Nick Wallace, author of The Great Post Office Scandal, broke the story and then ran with it, persevering despite obstructions from those trying to keep things hidden and disinterest from some who thought the story was too technical, too geeky. We're fortunate to have grabbed Nick for his take on the Fed and where it all went wrong. I started off by asking Nick a near impossible question.
5: Could he sum up the Horizon scandal in just a few sentences? Uh, the government decided to automate the post office, cooked up a PFI deal, uh, which would involve a IT system being rolled out into the entire post office estate, front and back end automation for twenty thousand individual post uh, offices around the country. Um, the system didn't work when it was rolled out; it never worked properly up until about twenty seventeen but the holes in the accounts that were caused by this faulty computer system were blamed on the sub-postmasters, and if they did not pay them back, even if they did on occasion, the, postmas- the post office would go after the sub-postmasters with their prosecution wing and proceed them through the criminal courts, ending up with 736 convictions over a 14-year period between 2000 and 2014 many of which have now been ruled an affront to the conscience of the court because the post office basically prosecuted these people on faulty IT information.
9: Thank you very much. I mean, for anyone who's not familiar with the scandal, that is an excellent, excellent uh, synopsis. I mean, what do you you hope will be the outcome from from the public inquiry? Can we be reasonably confident that now, now the truth has largely come out,
5: lessons will be learned, and we won't we won't get into this position again? The short answer is no, because until people are accountable for their actions, until people know that they themselves could go to prison if they make a decision in bad faith, or they make a decision which is incompetent, which ends up with someone else going to prison, then they will never be held properly to account. And this scandal could happen again and again and again. That's why we have the Windrush scandal, is why we have the infected blood scandal, is why we have all these IT disasters. The the, the long answer is that the inquiry should do more than lessons learned. It should look at who knew what when. It should pick out the decision makers at the post office and, if needs be, at the unions and look at the dynamic between them when they knew that there were problems with the computer system, the decisions they took subsequent to that, and whether or not there was a criminal conspiracy going on. I mean, the post office kept information from sub-postmasters, which would have helped their convictions to be quashed for a period of years, it wasn't until 2019 and the two seminal judgments from Mr. Justice Fraser in the civil litigation, that anyone in authority aligned themselves with the postmaster's arguments. And if the post office had a strategy of refusing to give information which could help people find their way to justice, and they knew they were doing that in order to protect their own reputations you're not that far away from coming to a conclusion that there may have been a criminal conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. And, and I would like to see the inquiry unpick all of that to see if charges can be at any door. We need a root and branch investigation of what's happening with this IT system. Because of the unfair contracts that the post office entered into with sub-postmasters, they could demand money with menaces under threat of removing someone's livelihood. And that was obviously a simple to send. where if they were to go and do a root and branch investigation of the, the Fujitsu's horizon system, they would be having to pay an awful lot of money, uh, potentially looking for a needle in a haystack that, that, that could impact their bottom line. Uh, go back to the NFSP's position, was, which was that they were protecting uh, the wider membership's bottom line by, by not querying what was going on with the post office prosecutions too much but at the cost of innocent people going to prison, which is about the most fundamental harm you can inflict on someone without it being actual violence.
9: I, I, I think that says it all. Many thanks, Nick. And I'll see you next time on ninjas
1: Bye for now. That's it for this edition of the Labour Radio Podcast Weekly. Our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website at laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.